message. Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Put the Sadducee, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The last two weeks I preached about life's greatest pleasure and life's greatest treasure. Near the end of the message last week I made reference to the two great commandments that we've just read about here in these verses. And so today I want to pick up where we left off last week and speak to you about life's greatest commandment. And as I said last week, it's in these two commandments that we see how to demonstrate our devotion to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being life's greatest treasure. Nothing could be more important than that. There's no hope of heaven, no deliverance from hell, no change of life without being a part of God's kingdom. And here we see to demonstrate our devotion to the kingdom of God here, we see the greatest commandment ever given. This is the means by which we give evidence that we are God's children, that we are part of God's kingdom. Now, before we consider this first and great commandment, I want to sort of set the stage for you this morning so you'll get the complete picture. And um, those of you familiar with this section of Scripture or even the life of Christ as far as that goes, you realize that the Jews, for the most part, were at odds with Jesus. Matthew chapter number 21 shows us that that they would have actually resorted to physical violence to stop him had it not been for a large number of people who were sympathetic toward him. He gathered a large following in that he spake never like any man had spoke before. He worked miracles. For some people, he was a source of entertainment. They followed him from place to place. But whatever the reason, he had gained such a large following that these Pharisees and Sadducees were afraid to take him by physical force and put him to death at that particular time. So instead, they devised a plot against him. They sought for a means whereby they could trap him, find fault with him, discredit him. And beginning in verse 15 of this chapter, we see what I've called a Q&A, question and answers, with Jesus. 
And here they are, one right after the other, and asking questions, not out of sincerity, but questions that were designed for the purpose of trying to, to deceive him, discredit him, destroy him any way they could. If they could ruin his reputation, they thought we can stop people from following him. And, and they began in verse number 15 by asking a political question. And I'm not going to get involved in that. It would become a distraction to what we're speaking about this morning. But then in verse 23, that section has to do with a moral question. But here in verse 34, we find a theological question. There's a lawyer, it says, inquiring about what is the greatest commandment. Now, keep in mind, he knew this was going to be a hot topic. He knew that this was for sure going to draw attention. Over the many years, the rabbis had expanded the Ten Commandments until finally they had a list of 613 precepts. I mean, this there was sure to be a debate about this. I mean, regardless of what Jesus said, somebody was going to raise up in protest against Him. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to muddy the water. They're trying to create turmoil. They're trying to discredit Him. And so that's what this question is is designed to do. Now, regardless of the lawyer's intent, you have to give him some credit. Credit in the sense that he asked a very important question. What is the great commandment? What is the most important thing? I mean, what is, you know, what is the number one obligation, the top priority? And whenever I think about this, I have to wonder to myself, why is it that People today aren't asking that question. I don't know about you, but I, don't, I can't remember anyone ever asking that question. Saying, you know, preacher, I've just, I've been wondering, I've been thinking about it, you know, a lot lately and my relationship with God. And I just wonder, what is the most important commandment? What is our, our main obligation in life? I don't imagine anyone has invited you over lately for popcorn and iced tea or Coca-Cola and said, we're just all going to get together and talk about the greatest commandment. That's not on anybody's list of topics for discussion. Nobody's really concerned about it. And from the way that people are living in our society today, it's obvious they don't care what it is. It makes them no difference whatsoever. They've got only one thing in mind. I'm talking about the average person, and that is to feed the lust of the flesh. That's all they're concerned about. There's no concern for the glory of God. It's all about gratifying self. But this is as serious as it can possibly get here. And I'm glad we don't have to look for the answer. Now, wouldn't it be terrible if, you know, if we were just posed with that question and said, now you figure it out? I'm glad that Jesus answered the question immediately, and He answered it clearly. And that is that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, and we're to love others as ourselves. Now, you probably maybe heard somebody say, well, you can't command love. Well, Jesus did. Well, you can't just command somebody to love you. Oh, yes, Jesus did. 
This is a commandment. This is not a suggestion. He's not saying, you know, it would really be a good idea if you want to create social order and human happiness, if you want to eliminate all of the confusion and the conflict and really live a good life, it'd be a great idea if you all would just learn, you know, to, uh, to love each other. No, He commanded us. I mean, this is on the very top of the list. And these two laws are a summary of the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, we find the first four related to our love for God and the other six related to our love for other people. That's what it all boils down to when you really examine each one of those. Maybe that accounts for the fact that there were two tables of stone upon which they were written. One dedicated to our obligation toward God and the other toward man. And of all of the things that could be mentioned concerning what we ought to do, this is our top priority. Now remember, love is an attitude of the heart. It's not an activity of the hands. You see, the Sadducees and Pharisees put all of the main emphasis upon the outward conduct. In other words, their performance. They loved to stand out on the on the street corners where everybody could see them and they're dressed in all of their garb. And boy, I mean, they're making a big to-do about it. I mean, they're out there praying in public and so forth. But it's all outward show. And that's why it was to them that the Lord spoke about the condition of the heart. And he reminded them, if a man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery already in, in his heart. I mean, you know, they'd stand out there and, and watch all of the chicks come by, you know, and just, as long as they didn't do it, you know, they thought, as long as, long as I don't do anything, it's all right. Um, that, that's where they have developed the mindset that is developed among people like that when all of the emphasis is just upon the outside and Jesus wanted them to know, no, no, it's a matter of the heart and love is a matter of the heart. It's not just the things that we do with our hands. It's not just a demonstration, you know, of our religious uh, dedication. It's what's in our heart. That gets scary, doesn't it? When you stop and think about what is really in your heart. Now, this was a quotation because this wasn't anything new. I've often wondered why Jesus didn't say, you nitwit, haven't you read the, the, the Old Testament? Now, he knew they had, of course. But I mean, that was the solution. It's not like the Lord gave them something new. Now, He did say, I've given you a new commandment. But it's not a new commandment in the sense that this is nothing new. It's a new commandment whenever He said, you know, that He commanded them to love others like I've loved you. That, that becomes something new, something different. But th this has to do with, with the confession of faith found in Deuteronomy chapter number 6 and verse number 4 and 5 there called the Sama, and this is what the Jews, every morning, every evening, they were required to quote this. Those little kids, I mean, from just an early age, they could all quote this. This was their, this was their standard of living, so to speak. And although they knew it, 
and even wore it inscribed and put in a little uh, a little leather box and wore it on their forehead. They put it on the on the doorpost and on the door gates. It was like sticky notes everywhere, reminding them that this is our main responsibility. This is the very essence of our relationship with God. And, and you know, sometimes I think we forget about that. Sometimes we make things more complicated than what they are. And there's so many times we think, you know, uh, if, if we don't have this, we don't have that, and we don't do things in a certain way that's not pleasing to God. I, I noticed the other day a, a post from a, from a preacher, and it had to do with some, some folks. I'm not sure of the exact location, but, but there were probably 15, 20 people in this little hut and they just, they didn't have just wooden benches i mean they just had some poles there and that, and that was all that they were sitting on a dirt floor nothing else no musical instruments because they didn't have any no songbooks because they didn't have any and it was making the point that stripped down to to to, to the bare bones as it were without all of the embellishments and what have you, those people were worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And there's so many times we think as long as the choir doesn't miss a note, as long as a preacher is on his game today, as long as everything goes right and the offering is up and the attendance is up, that means we've had a great day. It means nothing unless there's an expression of our love for God. And we could talk for hours about how our love is directed toward God, and yet it would be incomplete without this one factor, and that is the fact that it has to be demonstrated by our love for others. And that's what's really lacking today. You know, it's lacking because of the failure of the first. If we don't love you know, if we don't love God, we're not going to love one another. Turn over to First John for just a moment. And I don't want to linger there because I don't want you to lose your train of thought, but it's important that we understand this. First John, in chapter number 4, verse number 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Isn't that great? Some people have the idea you can't know whether you're saved or not. That's nonsense. We know we pass from death unto life. How do we know? Well, one way that we know is because we love the brethren. Amen. He that loveth not his brother, notice, abideth in death. Now look at chapter 4, verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God and everyone. That loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. Now look at verse number 20. If a man say, I love God. And a lot of people do. A lot of people say that. A lot of people sing about that. But if a man says, I love God, notice, and hateth his brother... He is a liar, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen. How can he love God whom he hath not seen? 
And this commandment have we from Him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Just about every person here this morning would say they love God. In fact, you could broaden the scope of that survey and go to your neighborhood and ask people that, you know, if they love God. And I suspect the majority of them would say, yes, why, of course I love God. But do we really? You see, it's one thing to say I love God. But the question is, how do they behave toward others? And whenever we look at it like that, when there's nothing more than a testimony that we love God without any evidence whatsoever, we're either deceived or we're lying about it. One of the two. Because if we love God, we're going to love one another. Well, most people would say, well, sure I love God and... They would say, and I love others, I don't hate anyone. Do you realize that hate is not the opposite of love? Do you know what the opposite of love is? I mean, one word, the opposite of love. It's not hate. It's apathy. I don't care. Apathy, that that indifference toward others. And, and any time that you know we ignore people, we're indifferent toward people, we hold people at arm's length, what we're saying is, I don't really love you. And that says we don't love God as we ought to. So how important is this? Well, it's important because it is the first and the great commandment, but it affects us in numerous ways. You'll remember, for example, when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's writing to them in order to correct a multitude of problems that existed in that congregation. And the interesting thing is, in the very first letter, in the first chapter, he reminds them that they come behind none of the other churches when it comes to the matter of spiritual gifts. They had all of these gifts just like the other churches. They were not in any way shortchanged. They were not deprived. They had all of the gifts, all of the ability. The problem was they didn't know how to get along with each other. They didn't know how to relate one to another. They were jealous one of another. Somebody had a particular gift and, you know, ten other people wanted that gift. They weren't satisfied with the gift they had. They wanted that gift. They wanted to be in that position. They wanted to do what they're doing. And so you've got these people divided in a big split, not just in two, but actually in more than that. Some said, well, we're a Paul. Some said, well, we're of Cephas. You know, some said, well, well I, you know, I, uh, I, I just, I'm just going to follow Christ. That's probably the worst of the bunch. I don't know. You know, just say, well, no, no. You know, I don't care what Paul said. I don't care what Peter said. You know, I, I'm, I'm just going to follow Christ. 
It's easy to say that. But whether it's true or not is revealed by the manner in which we relate to other people. You see, we can't divorce our devotion to the kingdom of God from our demonstration of love toward other people. This is where your attitude of love moves you to action. Remember, James talked about as he's speaking about faith. You know, a man says he has faith. You know, I don't, I don't have work, just have faith. And he said, if there's somebody that is, you know, naked or destitute, in other words, a person in need, and you pat him on the back and say, well, you know, God bless you, brother. You know, I'll, I'll be praying for you. I, I'm so sorry you're in that horrible condition. And yet you don't, do what's necessary to provide their needs. He said, what doth it profit? What does it profit? To say that you have works, you know, without any faith, what does it profit? It doesn't do anybody any good. Because real faith is going to be accompanied by works. Real saving faith is going to be accompanied by the kind of love that has a concern for the needs of others. It'd be really easy to divide this message up in all of these little points and close it with a poem, but let's not get distracted from the main thing, keeping the main thing the main thing ought to be the main thing. And it's really interesting, whenever you go over in Luke chapter number 10, where this is Luke giving the same account. The lawyer comes to Jesus, he asks the trick question, the Lord answers him in exactly the same way. But Luke's account is different because it is followed immediately by the story of the Good Samaritan. It's there for a reason. Here's a fellow, you know, that's going down the road and he is beaten, he's robbed, he's left for dead. And a priest comes by. Now you would think if anybody was going to help him, it would surely be a priest. I mean, after all, this is the fellow everybody looks up to to help get him to God and so forth. I mean, surely he's going to be concerned. But he passed by on the other side. So a Levite comes by. Now surely a Levite, thinking about the Levitical priesthood and and the ministry throughout the Old Testament, surely here is a guy that is well-versed in what God requires. And, and most certainly, being in such a position, he's going to have concern for this man. But he passed by on the other side. But a good Samaritan. The Samaritan was somebody considered to be a half-breed Jew that the Jews hated and nobody else wanted anything to do with. They were sort of the, the dregs, the scum of society. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. But the Samaritan comes by and he sees the man in need and it says that he went to him. Be real easy you know, to stand there and say, man alive, what in the world happened to you? Can you hear me? Are you dead? Are you alive? Stay right there. I'm going to go get help. Well, the poor fellow had probably died before he got back with help. He went to where he was, it says. 
That's part of our problem today. You know, we talk about all of our great love for God, but then we look out there and see a world in need and we won't go to where the need is. He went to where he was and he got down with the man and he helped him and he poured in oil and wine. He, in other words, he, he did what he could to provide things of medicinal value. He's ministering to him. Finally, he picks the man up. The man can't get up, so he picks him up. Have you got any idea how many folks you know? Some of your friends and your relatives, your classmates, your co-workers, they're down and they're out and they're dying without Christ. And they can't get up on their own. I'm telling you, they can't. You can judge them all you want and stand back and say, well, they don't have to live that way. You know, they made their bed, let them sleep in it. It's all their fault, the crazy decisions they made. All of that might be true, but the fact of the matter is they're taken captive of the devil at his will. They can't help themselves up. They need to know of the one that can help them, and that's Jesus Christ. And this man got down there where he was, and he put him on his own beast, and he took him to an inn. He said, here, told the innkeeper, said, here, gave him so much money, said, take care of him. And he said, by the way, he said, I don't know how much it's going to take. I don't know how long the stay is going to be. But if it exceeds what I've given you, I'll pay what I owe when I come back. What a great lesson that is when it has to do with this matter of loving God and loving each other. This shows us what love ought to look like. You know, we can talk about love all day long, but it doesn't do any good. That's what love looks like. And more than anything, we see what love looks like whenever we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says, He went about doing good. And think about it. Even dying for those who, di who despised Him. Those that ultimately crucified Him. And so the big question this morning is this, are you obeying the greatest commandment? That's not a hypothetical question, I'm asking you sincerely. Are you obeying the greatest commandment? You say, my, uh, my Sunday school attendance record is perfect. I give 20% instead of 10%. I sing in the choir. I work in the nursery. I do. No, no, that's not the question. The question is, are you obeying the greatest commandment? That is, do you truly love the Lord with all of your heart? Because if we fail here, we have failed altogether. You remember the Israelites there in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. They had not denied God. They had not ceased to worship. I mean, at least in their mind, they continued to assemble. They even continued to bring their sacrifices. They'd strike up the Levitical choir and begin to sing. And on the outside, to a lot of people, everything might have looked all right. And yet the Lord said, basically, get that noise out of here. It's just noise in my ears. Instead of giving God what He required, which was the very best of the flock, they gave Him 
what we would call the leftovers of life. They would bring a sacrifice that had been injured and, you know, was not fit for anything else. And so they would bring that and reason in their mind, well, the sacrifice is going to die anyway. What difference does it make? Well, it makes a big difference because God required a male of the first year to be spotless, without blemish, in perfect health. And God wouldn't accept anything else. God rejected everything they did because they failed in the main thing. And the main thing was to love the Lord with all of their heart. So if we fail there, we have failed everywhere. Nothing else is right if this isn't right. And for us to just say, I love you, Lord, or sing it like we do. I love you, Lord. That's not enough. Where's the evidence? Do you truly love others? Remember, we can't separate these two commandments. You know, it's not that we can do one and not do the other. Because if we love God, we're automatically going to love others. So, do you truly love God? Where's the evidence, okay? Do you love others? Where's the evidence? Because it's really easy to say to each other, you know, I love you, I've been praying for you, I love you, but where is the evidence? Listen carefully. Some people try to prove their love by pretending. In other words, they try to prove their love for God by pretending they love you. In fact, they will say they love you, they will treat you good, maybe do some good deed that will impress you. But it's not about you at all, it's all about them. It's not about you. They're basically using you is what it amounts to. They want you to think they love God because they told you they loved you. But yet they have zero concern about protecting, providing, or whatever it is, and demonstrating their love toward you. You see, that's why the Bible demands unfeigned love. That word's used on four occasions. Unfeigned love means unhypocritical love. Because let's face it, a lot of so-called love is, is hypocrisy. It's not real. And the Bible commands us to have unfeigned love for the brethren. Without hypocrisy. The, the word hypocrite comes from, a, comes from a Greek word that has to do with uh, taking off the mask. In those days, they, you know, would put on their plays and one person would, would play several different characters or several different parts in the play. And for each part, they had a mask. They'd put on this mask and they're playing the bad guy and the, with the black hat. They put on the other mask and all of a sudden now they're the good guy in the white hat. By the way, that has nothing to do with race. That has to do with watching Western movies 50 years ago. I, I tell her I need to explain that because some of these kids have no idea what I'm talking about. But you older folks 
know exactly what I mean. Putting on a mask, pretending to be something that you're not. You see, a hypocrite is a person whose face and heart doesn't match, or that is, they don't send the same signal. It's a different signal. Put the mask on, boy, we look good. But behind the mask, in the heart, there's something terribly wrong. Romans chapter 12 and verse number, verse number 9, I believe it is, says, let love be without dissimulation. And that, that implies being without any hypocrisy. Let it be sincere, genuine, real. That word sincere means without any wax, because in those days, a lot of the merchants would take a vessel, for example, that had been cracked, and they would put wax in the crack, and you know, and paint over it, make it look like it was really good, but it was inferior. You know, it wouldn't really serve the purpose, but boy, they could, you know, they could sell it, they could cut the price, sell it, get rid of it. Somebody buy that vessel and think, man, I got a great bargain down at the flea market today. All of a sudden, get home and the first time they bump it or put something hot in it, all of a sudden the crack appears and it's worthless. That word sincere means without wax. That's the way our love for one another's to be without any pretense whatsoever that we not only say I love you, but that we do our best to prove our love by the way that we treat people. I just pray that God will help us and to rip off the mask this morning. And I know it's so easy for us to sit here again and assume, well, I love everybody because I don't hate anybody. You know, I, I don't doubt the last part of that. I think there, we've got, I think, the best people on earth and I don't know of anybody here that hates somebody else certainly not a member of the congregation but don't you dare think I'm so stupid to not be able to see and to know and to realize that many of us many times are guilty of holding somebody out here at arm's length we just let them that far we got our little group over here, and you stay over there. You're just fine. I don't hate you. You're just fine. I'm not going to throw rocks at you. I won't even gossip about you. I just don't want anything to do with you. And yet you would turn around and say, I love my church. Who are you talking about when you say you love your church? We're talking about people. We're talking about family and friends, and that's what real love is. Is the Gaither song. It's all about loving God, loving each other. And if we're not loving God, we're sure not loving each other. Well, it must have been hard for those Jews to admit that they had a real serious spiritual problem. And I'm telling you folks, sometimes it's really difficult for, for us. Us independent, fundamental, Baptist. It's so easy for us to pretend like everything's alright when it isn't. 
Oh, we look at these good factors about the church and we give ourselves an A plus here and an A plus there. And so many times lurking in the shadows is that we've got our mask on in regards to other members of the church. Or even other members of our family. Confession is good for the soul. Let me just... Nobody on earth knows me better than my wife. That scares me. <laughs> it really does. It scares me. She knows me better than, than anyone. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I've often talked about my natural temperament from the time I was a kid is to get you before you get me. And if you get me, I'm going to get even with you. All my life, I've had to fight against that. I'm just being honest. I don't know. I can't explain why I've been like that, but it's been there all of my life. I, I remember a time, in fact, it was just before coming here. No, oh, it was right after coming here, basically. I thought I had made everything right in my heart with certain people. Although I was not in the wrong, I had to pay the price. And my family had to pay the price of other people because of a lack of love mistreating us. And I decided that I have got to forget. I cannot keep living and preaching without forgiving those people. And so I just made a conscious decision. Okay, I, I forgive you. I even told some of them. I picked up the phone. I called some of them. I saw some of them later on, a year later, and told them all of that's in the past, but it wasn't because it was still in my heart. Inside, I was boiling. I knew I ought to forgive them, but I hadn't really done anything about it. And I'm telling you what, I would have been that way till this day had it not been for God helping me. You see, the Christian life's not just hard. It's impossible. Love your enemies? Are you kidding me? I could give you names of people but by the grace of God that I didn't kill. I'll never, I'll never forget a certain barber where we moved from that told the cops what I was thinking. And the cops, who happened to be good friends of mine, came to me and said, don't you do it. Don't you go there. And my family would have suffered the rest of their life had I just give in to the flesh. And it was only by the grace of God that I didn't do what I felt like doing. Now, why am I, why am I bringing all of this up? I mention all of this to let you know that there's so many times that deep down in our heart we know that something has gone awry, that there is something really, really wrong. That we can get up here on Sunday morning, we can sing, oh, how I love Jesus. But deep down in our heart, we know we have bitterness and animosity and so forth in our heart towards somebody else. And we don't want to deal with it. We know deep down that we ought to deal with it, but we don't really want to deal with it. But we need to deal with it. 
I have no idea what might be going on in your heart. The only thing I'm really certain of here in regards to this message is I know this is the message God wanted me to preach. I know that. I don't have any doubt about that. So I'm not making any accusations against anybody. But I'm telling you, the thing that we so desperately need more than anything else is to be obedient to life's greatest commandment. To obey God, to serve God, love God with all of our heart. And that will enable us to love others. The real key, and I'm going to preach on this, Lord willing, next week. The real key is found in verse 42. Jesus suddenly turned the tables on them. They've been asking Him questions. And He said in verse 42, What think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? That's what everything boils down to. Our attitude toward Christ is the determining factor in everything we do in life. What think ye of Christ? Let us pray. Father, how we thank You for Your dear Son and the gift of His life and the salvation He provided and the changes that He makes. And beyond that, Lord, we thank You that He promised He would never leave us nor forsake us. And although He has imposed these great demands upon His disciples that that we're required to love You with all of our heart and to love others when they're unlovely and to be willing to forsake all and to endure the cross and the pain and the suffering and everything else. Things that in and of ourselves would be impossible. And yet He has assured us that His grace is sufficient. God, change us this morning as Brother Kenneth prayed earlier. Change us. Let this, be a, let this be a changing day in our life. Help us by Your Spirit to reveal those things in our heart that ought not to be there. And God, help us to deal with it. Help us to not ignore it and walk away the same as we came. But to leave here changed as a result. Help us to love You more and to serve You better. And to love others. Because You first loved us. In Jesus' name. While we stand and as we sing this morning, you don't have, listen, you don't have to confess anything to me or to Brother Kenneth. But if God's speaking to your heart, you need to do business with God.